been thinking about this through the week. Had a little fun with this. America, I've discovered, is no stranger to irrelevant laws. Now, there are those who would come to these things in, uh, in Exodus 21, 22, and 23, this law given to Moses and the people, and they would read them and say, irrelevant. These have nothing to do with us. An ox goring a neighbor's ox, what does that have to do with me? I don't have to worry about my ox goring my neighbor's ox. No, but you might be concerned if your Bronco runs into your neighbor's Bronco. Okay, so we'll just see about the application in a minute. But America is no stranger to irrelevant laws. Here are a few that I just discovered. You can do this on the web. It's real easy. Just type in uh, strange or funny laws, and you come up with all kinds of stuff. Check these out. In New York City, now these are old laws. They're not relevant today, but they're still on the books. No one's gone back to erase them or change them. These are actually on the books in several states in America. In New York, a man can be find 25 bucks for flirting on a city street. The old law specifically prohibits men from turning around on a city street and, quote, looking at a woman in that way, as the law says. The punishment for a second violation of this law requires a male to wear a pair of horse blinders every time he goes out for a stroll. <laughs> also in New York, the legal penalty for jumping off a building is death. Think about that one. In California, it's a misdemeanor to shoot at any game from a moving vehicle unless the target is a whale. <laughs> Apparently you can shoot at other drivers, that's okay. In Florida, men may not be seen publicly in any kind of strapless gown. <laughs> In Alabama, it's illegal to be blindfolded while operating a vehicle. Hmm. Okay. It's also illegal in Alabama to wear a fake mustache that causes laughter in church. It's in the law books, folks. Or this one. In North Carolina, you can't even tell a joke from the pulpit of a church without being fined. I'd be in trouble. <laughs> That's North Carolina, which is why we're in Washington. <laughs> now again, if you were to read through these chapters at a cursory glance, you might find some of these laws as difficult to apply to today. You'd read them and say, okay, well that's obviously for Israel, it's not for me. And I would say, be careful with saying anything in God's word is not for you. Because the application is always there if we'll take the time to look for it. And I'm not talking about making up stuff, trying to apply something that really isn't applicable, but there are principles behind every law that God lays down. We're going to see a few of those principles tonight. Principles, by the way, that were new on the world scene. Especially for the cultures that surrounded Israel at this time. Pagan cultures who would not even think twice about uh, applying their own sense of justice. Not doing it God's way. And he comes up with specific boundaries, parameters for the people of Israel. Just ways that they can live their life. Now as we talked about last week, some of the things that God deals with are not things that God is pleased with. As in polygamy. God gives them parameters for if that happens. It's not that God is okaying polygamy. It's not that he's saying it's a good thing. He's not. But he's dealing with what he has. And what he has is a baby fledgling nation. What he has is a group of people who are now just for the first time coming to understand law and what it means. And so God is taking them, taking these children of faith and beginning to lay these things out for them. And over time they will grow into it. Keep this in mind. God administers righteousness in doable doses. He administers righteousness in doable doses. That's what he's doing with Israel. He does the same thing with us, doesn't he? The Lord doesn't expect a brand new baby Christian to have verses memorized. To be able to go out and witness on street corners and change the lives of people around them. He's not going to do that. What he does expect for a brand new baby Christian is maybe just that they open the Bible a few times a week. Maybe just that they'll turn to him and pray. Maybe just that they'll use the name of Jesus, mention the name of Jesus on their lips to a friend. Doable doses. But God is never satisfied with those little amounts. He always wants to grow. He always increases the doses of righteousness for us. Now remember again, 3,500 years ago, no laws like these existed. But now as God gives them to Israel, he doles them out in doable amounts. He's trying to raise the people up to a new standard of righteousness. He's trying to bring them closer to him. Now he knows, and the Bible tells us, they're, they're going to fail miserably. 
Nobody can keep God's perfect law. In fact, again, in Galatians it tells us the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That was the point. However, it also was a standard, a measure of holiness. And God, as we'll see as we close out the chapter tonight, God wants His people to be holy. Holy. Oh, you mean like spiritual. No. To be holy means to be set apart. He wants Israel to be a different kind of people. And so he begins to lay down these laws. And again, behind these laws are principles. Important principles of righteousness. And these we can kind of jot down as we go. There are only two or three of them we'll look at tonight. Major principles, overarching principles for several of these laws. And here's the first one if you want to jot this down. And it's a new one on the scene for the world. Responsibility. The principle of responsibility in God's desire for His people. Verse 23 of Exodus 21 as we pick up there. The Lord says, If there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as penalty life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now we ended with this verse last week. God is actually putting limitations here though on the idea of retribution. There is payback. God allows payback, but mercifully God puts a a wall there. It's not if someone takes your life, you can take the life of their family. It's not if you lose an eye in a fight, you're allowed to blind the other person poking out both of their eyes. Now see, that's human nature. It's why we have had things in our country's history and in the world's history like family feuds. One person in one family kills someone else. Instead of a life for a life, now the families are killing each other. So that's humans. That's humanity's way of dealing with things. That's the way we respond, the way we, we react. God says, no, I'm going to limit you. Life for life. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. We're going to put a fence here. It's not what he wants. It's not the perfect law. Jesus will come along with that later. Matthew chapter 5 verse 38. He says, you've heard it was said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. So God, doable doses, starts out with Israel and says, alright, life for life. Let's at least stop going far beyond that. Let's keep it even. You lose a tooth, you can take a tooth. But let's stop there. It's not lose a tooth, send your friend to the dentist for serious surgery. You know, it's one tooth for one tooth. We'll stop it there. But Jesus comes along later and says, now let me tell you what the perfect intention of the Father's heart is. If someone takes your tooth, open your mouth wide. <laughs> someone slaps you on the face, you turn and let him slap you again. You do not repay evil for evil. You leave that up to God. There's a different law for a different time. For later on, as the people grow in righteousness, understanding the heart of God better, seeing His mercy throughout their history, and many Jews would see God's mercy. And throughout all that time, Jesus finally then comes along and raises them up to a higher standard. In Exodus, God regards man's heart in His laws. In Matthew, man gets to regard God's heart in His laws. You see the difference? In Exodus, in these early laws, God is looking at man's heart and saying, Okay, I'm going to give them what they can handle right now. I'm just going to give them a little bit, but we're going to start them down the road. But you get over to the New Testament, you get to Jesus, and now man gets to look into the heart of God to understand these laws from the perspective of grace. You could call it the unfolding revelation of the Father. I've said this many times, but I have been amazed at how God has used the entire canvas of history to paint a picture of himself. That he has walked all the way through and shown us just bits and pieces of who he is all the way culminating in the person of Jesus who is the perfect representation of the Father. And by the time Jesus came onto the world scene, people were ready. They were ready to see Jesus for who he was. And in the last 2,000 years, we've come to understand him even more. Well, verse 26, picking up from there, says, If a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let him go free on account of his tooth. And here again we see more of God's grace and mercy working itself out in his laws. How does that work? Where's the grace and mercy in this? Well, think about it this way. God does not want a slave to remain in a place where harm will continue to be done. So if a master is harsh enough to take out a slave's eye, 
or to bust out a slave's tooth, God says, hey, if it gets that bad, the slave is free. I don't want even the slave, one of my children, in a place where they can continue to be harmed. And so we see grace, we see mercy in God's actions here. Verse 28. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. Now, God is not punishing the ox. He's not punishing the dumb animal. He's removing the danger. And we could actually apply this today. If you're pit bull happens to bite a child next door and he's never done it before well you destroy the animal we need some security, some safety we need to remove the danger but the the owner is not liable however if that pit bull is known for destroying biting children if it's a mean vicious dog the owner is liable the owner is culpable for it now the ox gets killed however the owner does lose out because he doesn't get to have a barbecue there the flesh shall not be eaten so that's not allowed. Well, moving on, verse 29 tells us, If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring, and its owner has been warned, yet he does not confine it, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and listen, its owner shall also be put to death. That is a serious consequence. Responsibility. God is, again, for the first time in the world system, introducing responsibility. Hey, you are responsible for your property, for your animals. You're responsible for those things around you. So take it seriously. And that's what he's saying here. It is serious enough. If your ox has gored someone else, if your ox has been dangerous for someone else, you are responsible to deal with it. If this is a known thing. And if you don't, and someone is killed, you are responsible. You shall be put to death. Verse 30 tells us, Now if a ransom is demanded of him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. Verse 31 says, Whether it gores a son or a daughter, it shall be done to him according to the same rule. So the person didn't necessarily have to die, but they did have to pay up. God is saying responsibility here. You've got to be a responsible people. If something happens, you do have responsibility. First offense, that is accidents, are not your fault. Although you have to make it right by getting rid of the thing, which would be in this case the ox. If you know the danger, however, and do nothing, you are liable and you'll either die or pay a monetary settlement. In other words, friends don't let friends' oxes gore their friends. Another good way to put it. Now, again, you read this and think, okay, well, what's the ox got to do with, with really anything in our lives? I think we need to learn something from this here, especially in the culture in which we live where people are running away from responsibility. God calls his people to responsibility and Christians as we live the Christian life we are responsible responsible for our behavior responsible for those things that are under our control it is Christian behavior to take that seriously and not to always be looking for the next lawsuit the next chance to blame the next chance to cast it off on somebody else saying well it really wasn't my fault I wasn't even there yeah it was my car but you know I had nothing to do with me responsibility Nowadays, litigation respond, uh, replaces liability. You know, let's, let's get a good lawyer and see what we can get out of this. As opposed to saying, no, you know, I have responsibility here. And that's what the Lord is calling for. Now, there's an interesting qualification that God gives to this law regarding slaves. Look at verse 32. If the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. So in other words, if the owner of an ox, if his ox gores and kills the slave, then the owner is not liable for the death of that person. Why not? Well, a couple of reasons. One is a practical reason. If you think about it, the slave may be the one who's charged with taking care of the ox, with keeping the ox confined, with looking after the animal. And, and if he gets gored and doing his job, that's not the owner's fault. And the slave is, in this case, the property of the owner. But there's something else here, I think, a little bit deeper. I mean, you might look at this and say, well, it's still not fair. God sets up an arbitrary cash settlement, 30 shekels of silver, when an ox gores a slave. Why? Why 30 shekels of silver? Does 30 shekels of silver sound familiar to anybody? I mean, this is what Jesus 
was betrayed for. This is what Judas was paid so that the slave of the Father, Jesus, would be gored, would be pierced through. I love this because we see even in these interesting and very relevant to the times laws, God weaves in little pictures of Jesus. And I believe that's exactly what he's doing. It's not arbitrary. It's not coincidental. God's saying, no, we have a slave getting gored, 30 shekels of silver. Later on, people are going to look back and go, wow. He had this thing planned out from the very beginning. And he did. Matthew chapter 26 verse 14 says, One of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. And from then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Matthew 27 verse 9. And you know what? You might want to keep your finger in Exodus and flip over there real quickly. Because I want to show you something. A little rabbit trail here, but it's important for scripture. Matthew 27 verse 9. It tells us something interesting about this prophecy of the 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 27, verse 9. You ready? It tells us that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. You may if you circle things in your Bible, underline. Underline Jeremiah the prophet. That which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, quote, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. So again, back in the, in the beginnings of the law, Exodus chapter 21, we see a slave that is pierced or gored. It received, there's a payment of thirty shekels of silver. So there's a picture there painted ahead of time. But now we get over to Matthew and we read this. And Matthew draws back to the Old Testament and says, See, it's a fulfillment of prophecy here. This was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet and it was fulfilled in the betrayal of Jesus. There is a problem. You cannot find this prophecy in the book of Jeremiah. It's not in Jeremiah. It's in Zechariah chapter 11 verses 12 and 13. Uh Uh-oh. So we've got a scriptural problem here. I want to show you this because I want you to understand how we we put this together. How scripture maintains its truthfulness, even in situations where you read. And someone may even pull this up to you sometime and say, Hey, he quotes a prophecy that's not even from the right place. So obviously scripture is flawed. No, scripture is not flawed, it's flawless. Look again at Matthew 27 verse 9. That which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. Not that which was written. Matthew doesn't say it was written in Jeremiah the prophet. He says it was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. It is very likely here, folks, that Jewish oral tradition carried on that Jeremiah did prophesy this. However, it was not written down by Jeremiah. But later, Zechariah comes along and writes it down in his prophecy as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Matthew may be recounting here Jewish oral tradition as opposed to what was actually written down in Scripture. The Bible is very clear. God's word does not miss a trick. It's not that which was written through Jeremiah the prophet. It was that which was spoken. So there's a clear difference here. In any case, as early as Exodus 21-32, God begins making it clear that Jesus is the servant who was gored, who was pierced for the price of 30 shekels of silver. Back to Exodus 21. Verse 33. If a man opens a pit or digs a pit and does not cover it over, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead animal shall become his. If one man's ox hurts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide its price equally, for they shall also divide the dead ox. So they sell the ox that that killed the other ox, divide the money, and then the ox that's killed, they divide that. So they do get the barbecue there. That's a good thing. Then it goes on and says, If it's known that the ox was previously in the habit of goring, yet its owner has not confined it, He shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall become his. What's going on here? Again, gang, it's not only personal responsibility, but God is now going to move into a new area, a brand new area. There was a sense of responsibility in in kingdoms like Egypt that was taught that you can see that in some of the laws, but this one's brand new, and it's the principle of restitution. Responsibility, first principle, second principle, is restitution. 
as God sets up these serious penalties for stealing and or slaughtering oxen, oxen and sheep, he brings in this important principle. Read verse 1 of chapter 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. We're seeing the principle of restitution, which was brand new. In other words, God says if you commit a crime, you will pay for it. You will pay for it. Now something that I I just realized this last week, very interesting. In fact, it's surprising. There is something absolutely absent, something missing from the Jewish legal system. If you look at all the laws, if you study the way Israel did things, there's something that you will not find there, and that is a prison system. Israel did not have jails. People were not incarcerated for crimes. Israel's way of dealing with it, God's way of dealing with it, was restitution. You commit a crime, you pay for it. Now in America, what we do is we have the jail system, the penal system, and it works great, doesn't it? It rehabilitates so well, doesn't it? What we do is we take criminals, guys who have stolen things or murdered or or sold drugs, and we put them all in one place where they hang out together and they brood, and then we expect in five or ten years they're going to come out better for it. This is human logic. God says, no, if you steal, you pay. If you murder, you pay. Life for life. You steal something, you steal a sheep, you pay four sheep. You steal an ox, you pay five. You pay back when you steal things. It is the law of restitution. Interesting in America, in the late 90s, we surpassed Russia as the most jailed nation in the world. We have more people than any other nation in jail. The statistics are somewhere, it's more than 70 out of every thousand Americans sit in jail today. Our system's working great, isn't it? Commit a crime, we say, and you get to sit in jail for it. That's your payback. And it's not the greatest deterrent. You would think it's a good deterrent. It's not. In God's economy with Israel, responsibility and restitution was required. Now, you may look at these verses and say, okay, I don't understand something here. If someone is stealing an ox or a sheep, he probably doesn't have five five oxen or four sheep to pay back. I mean, think about it. God says, if you steal a sheep, you pay back four. Well, if I had four sheep in the first place, I probably wouldn't need to steal a sheep, right? So who's responsible? The family is. The family is. So it's not just the guy. And the responsibility gets heavier as they go. People had to think about what they were going to do. Man, if I do this, now I'm going to be responsible for payback four times as much. Do you think the parents took maybe a more serious role in parenting when they knew that they were responsible for the actions of their children? Maybe a different role than parents in our country tend to take with their kids? It's not my fault. He's his own person. Sure, he's nine years old and he was playing with my gun, but it's not my fault. Well, the parents in Israel were trained early on that you are responsible. That you do have to make payments if your children behave in such a way. The family was responsible. And gang, there is a trickle-down effect in society, especially in a society like ours, that's free from restitution and responsibility. As we're not responsible, as we don't pay restitution, we in our society, we make an assumption of innocence. Innocent until proven guilty. God looks at the heart of man and says, <laughs> Guilty until I make you innocent. That's it. Nobody is innocent. And you will not tend toward innocence. You will not tend toward good behavior. Mankind will tend toward bad. And so man needs some boundaries. Restitution, responsibility. God lays these things out. He knew man was going to sin, so he devises a law which requires payback. And it culminated, by the way, in the ultimate restitution, which was Jesus on the cross. The ultimate payback or payment. By the way, grace does not ease this sense of righteousness that God called Israel to. Because we're under grace, it doesn't mean that that it's easier for us. Actually, what grace does is increase the call to righteousness. It makes righteousness greater. I was wondering where Annie was. There is a funny little tax man in the Bible. You know him by the name of Zacchaeus. And he understood something of how grace increases a desire for righteousness. 
doesn't he? He's a little man who was up in the tree. Jesus came to his town and called him and said, Zacchaeus, I'm having lunch at your house. And he's blown away that the teacher, the rabbi, the master, the Messiah, would want to have lunch with him. And he has this great banquet in his house. And as they're all sitting around the table, it tells us in Luke 19, verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. He's going right back to the Israeli law or the Israelite law of restitution. You steal a sheep, you pay back four. And so Zachariah says, if I'm defrauded, or, or Zacchaeus says, if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to pay back four times as much, just like the law says. Why did he do that? Well, he was trying to garner favor with the Lord. He already had favor with the Lord. He already had the grace of Jesus, the graciousness of Jesus. And so what does it do to Zacchaeus? It makes him want to comply. It drives them toward righteousness. And that's what grace does. It drives us closer to righteousness, not further away. You know, as we look at the Ten Commandments on Sunday morning and continue to study through these commands, we, if we understand grace, we'll be drawn to following them. I already have my ox tied up because of grace. I'm kidding. I don't have an ox. So, Spence, I'm just making... Okay. Yeah. But I do have my car tied up just in case it happens to roll over somebody because I don't want to be responsible for that. Anyway, why was Zacchaeus pay back four times what he was defrauded again? Because he's drawn back to the righteousness of the law because of the graciousness, graciousness of Jesus. Verse 2 of, of chapter 22. Look back at this again. Again, if a thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. What this is saying is if a thief breaks in at night, in the dark, and is killed during the break-in by the owner of the house, he's not. the owner is not culpable for the death of the thief. The thief knew what he was doing and put himself in harm's way, and the death is not the responsibility of the owner. However, interesting, read on, it tells us that if... Let's see, if the sun has risen on him, in other words, if there's daylight, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. You know what God's saying here? If a thief breaks into your home in the daytime, you are not allowed to kill him. If you kill him, you're responsible. That sounds kind of like the guy in Seattle, this was several years ago now, who was trying to break into a house and he was up on top of the roof. Do you remember the story? And he fell through the roof and he sued the owners of the house and won? True story. But that's not what's going on here. God is still concerned about human life, even the life of a thief. And so in the dark of night, he says, you know, if it's dark and a thief breaks in, you know, his life is in his own hands. It can't be seen. It's dangerous. The person owning the house doesn't have any idea what the intentions are. Maybe the guy's breaking in to murder someone in his family, and so his life is in his own hands. But if it's in the light of day, and this is important, gang, if it's in the light of day, there is responsibility on the part of the homeowner not to kill the thief. Oh, he can still capture him. He can still go after him. But he is responsible if the thief dies in the daylight hours. Now, the wording is interesting here. It's a little bit difficult. Because what it says in verse 4, it says, If what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, that's not the best translation. The word alive there is not, is not tied to what he stole. It's tied to the thief. In other words, what, what it's actually saying in, in the original translation is, If he is alive when he's found with things that he's stolen in his possession... Whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Okay? If the thief is alive and has whatever he stole in his possession, Kyle and Delich say this about it. The reason for this disparity between a thief by night, night and one in the day is that the power and intention of a nightly thief are uncertain. In the latter case, even if the life of a thief was to be spared, or even the life of the thief was to be spared so that he could be punished for his crime and what was stolen could be restored according to the regulations laid down in verses 1 and 4. Again, God is placing parameters of safety on the value of a human life, even the life of a thief. But there's a sub-principle here. And it's something that we shouldn't miss. And this one took me several days to come up with, so listen closely on this one. I really had to ponder this and try and figure out what is going on here. Principle number three is the idea of progressive responsibility. We had the principle of responsibility, the principle of restitution, but now we get to the third one, progressive responsibility. What does that mean? Simply this. And you may want to jot this down. With increased light comes increased responsibility. 
with increased light comes increased responsibility. In the dark of night when the thief breaks in, the owner of the house is not responsible to care about the life of the thief. His only concern is protecting his family. However, in the daylight, it's a different thing. As the light increases, the responsibility increases. And there's a great principle here, gang, that we can apply to ourselves. The more the light, the greater the responsibility, even for the treatment of the thief. If you can see what you're doing, and you do it anyway, you're responsible. James chapter 4 verse 17 says, Therefore to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 20 says, For if after they escape the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than, to have, than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them with increased light comes increased responsibility. The more I know Jesus, the more I responsible I am because of knowing Jesus. The deeper I get into grace, the more responsible I am to give grace to other people. The more I understand God's love, the more loving I am called to be. With increased light, there is increased responsibility. Now listen to this. There is another thief in the night who Paul says should not come as surprise to children of the light. I've read this verse too many times, 1 Thessalonians 5.4, But brethren, you are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night or of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. A couple of interesting things. I had a conversation with a guy on Sunday morning after worship. And as we were talking, he, he made the comment, and I've heard this so many times, you know, I don't need to care about how Jesus is coming back. Just that he's coming, that's all I really need to know. And I disagree. I disagree. I was reading just this week about that very theory. It's called pan-millennialism, millennialism, the belief that it's all going to work out in the end. Big picture, Jesus is coming back, so why worry about it? Because the Bible says to think about it. Why concern myself with how Jesus is going to come back? Because the Bible says specifically how he's going to do it. And we're called to know these things. It's all going to work out in the end. Why should I study that? Why should I care? Dang, it's dangerous thinking to go that route. I mean, I literally believe it's a dangerous thing. It's not just because I get all hyped up about prophecy and end times. You know that I do. But that's not my point here. It is dangerous thinking to walk through the Christian life and to look at God's word and say, it doesn't matter how it's going to end. It does matter. For one thing, if I say it doesn't matter how, it, how it's going to end, then what I'm saying is it doesn't matter what God's word says. It doesn't really matter. I'm diminishing the authority of God's word in teaching me the way things are to be. God also says, I want you to be children of light. I want your eyes open. I want you to see and understand these things. That's why I gave you my word. And as Christians, if we say, yeah, but I don't understand Revelation, so I'm not going to touch it. Yeah, but you know, there's so many different theories out there about how Jesus is going to come. Why it's not that big a deal. We are demeaning scripture, I believe. It is biblical, and we are called to know it. If I don't care about how Jesus is going to come, guess what I am doing as a child of light? I am stepping back into the dark. I'm closing my eyes. I'm going to stand in the shadows and wait and see what happens as opposed to being a person of light that I'm called to be. And Paul says it very clearly, you're children of light. It should come as no surprise. So be children of light. With increased light comes increased responsibility. Verse 5. Verse 5 goes on and says, If a man lets a field or a vineyard be grazed bare, and lets his animal loose so that it grazes in another man's field, he shall make, again, restitution. You'll see this word keep coming up. From the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes so that stacked grain or the standing grain of the field itself is consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. James, by the way, compares this idea of a fire, a raging fire, a fire that can consume an entire field. He compares it, interestingly, to the tongue. And there is application, I believe, here. God says, if you light a fire in a field and it raises the field, 
If it destroys it, you have a responsibility to the owner of that field and to the fruit of that field. James chapter 3 verse 5 tells us the following. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. James understood something about the tongue. I wonder if James had been gossiped about. I wonder if James had experienced some of this, if he had been chewed up or if he had been burned by someone else's tongue or maybe if he recognized the dangerous fire in his own mouth as he possibly hurt somebody else. But he describes it powerfully, gang, that the tongue is a fire. It has the ability to consume the good fruits of someone else's field, of someone else's life, through gossip, through slander, through distortion. And here in this law is some good advice as to what to do if you have burned the fruit of another person by use of the tongue. God says in Exodus 23, verse 5, He says, He shall make restitution from the best of His own field and the best of His own vineyard. Applying that to the flame of the tongue and and the destruction that we can cause in destroying someone else's good fruit, the principle is simply replace the fruit that was burned. Now we say, okay, if I've gossiped about someone, if I've slandered about, if I've slandered somebody, then I need to make restitution. So what does that look like? It looks like me going to the person and apologizing. But I think a lot of times we assume that that's that's where it ends. But if we're applying the old law, what we're seeing is that it doesn't end there. We also need to make restitution for the fruit that was lost. Well, how do I do that? How about going to the people that we've gossiped about this other person too? and restoring their good name. It doesn't just stop with the individual in an apology. There are other people who now have heard things about this person. Make it right. Return the good fruit of the offended person. Don't just apologize. Tell the people you talk to about that person. Restore their field. Verse 7. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him and is stolen from the man's house... If the thief is caught, he shall pay double. Now this was something that was done. They didn't have banks in those days. And so a lot of times you would have a friend or a neighbor or someone else hold things for you, hold valuables, hold money. And he's saying if it, if it gets stolen well, and the thief is caught, he shall pay double. Going on, he says if the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust whether it's for an ox or a donkey or sheep or clothing or for any lost thing about which one says this is it the case of both parties shall come before the judges and he whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbors restitution verse 10 if a man gives his neighbor a donkey an ox a sheep or any animal to keep for him and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one is looking An oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of him that he has not laid hands on his neighbor's property. I think it's interesting. An oath before the Lord. We would do well in our legal system to bring the Lord into our laws more often. God says, you you and the other person, the offending party, you come together before me. An oath before the Lord that you have not laid your hands on your neighbor's property and its owner shall accept it and he shall not make restitution but if it is actually stolen from him he shall make restitution to its owner verse 13 if it is all torn to pieces let him bring it as evidence he shall not make restitution for what, for what has been torn to pieces if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies while its owner is not with it he shall make full restitution if its owner is with it he shall not make restitution if it is hired it came for its hire what God is saying in all these things is more important than your ox more important than your sheep more important than your stuff that you loan to your neighbor more important than all of that is your neighbor. Your relationship matters more to me than your dumb ox. And so make restitution. Why? Because it will maintain the relationship. It will protect the relationship between the people. And God always puts a high premium on relationships. Well, going on, and we change directions a little bit here. Verse 16 says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. 
Once again, if a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. Notice that the father has a choice in this, but the seducer does not. The father, in verse 17, if he absolutely refuses to give her to him, if the father refuses, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. If the father says, no way, you mess with my daughter, you think you want, I'm not going to have you for a son-in-law, it's not going to happen, well, the father has a say in it. The seducer does not. If a man seduces a virgin not engaged, lies with her, he now has just bought himself a wife. This is the law that God laid down. But what if the seducer doesn't want her for a wife? Here's the deal. He already made the choice. Let me make this really clear. God is pro-choice. God has always been pro-choice. From the beginning of time, God is and has been and will always be pro-choice. He's the one who gave us choice. He's the one who gave us free will. However, our problem is not with the idea of choice. Our problem is with the idea of when choice happens. And choice in our world, in our language, in our country, choice happens at conception, not later. Choice is made when the seducer takes the virgin to himself. He has made the choice. He has chosen her, God would say, as his wife. The choice has been made. And if it's found out after the fact, hey, you don't have any more choice. You made your choice. And that's the deal. God is pro-choice, but choice is not an after-the-fact argument as our, well, as many people in our country try to say that it is. The Bible's clear on this issue. Once a man lies with a woman, ceremony or not, he is joined to her. Paul even goes so far as to relate this to laying with a prostitute. He says in 1 Corinthians, Don't you know the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her, for the two will become one flesh. So God is saying this principle early on. And again, all the way back to Genesis, he said, Hey, a man and a woman shall leave their father and mother and be united to become one flesh. Mark 10, verse 6. Jesus said, From the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. They are no longer two flesh, two people. They are one flesh. By the way, this being the law in Israel, think about how far-reaching the impact of this law would have been among the young men in their culture. If you lie with her, she's yours. If you take her and lie with her, if you seduce the girl, she's your wife. So you better think twice, maybe three times before pulling that off. Why is it in our culture that teenage sexuality is so rampant and so out of control? What's the consequence? If I lie with her, so what? She might try and come back to me and and, and force some kind of responsibility. I'm not responsible. But in this culture, God says, no, you are. And if you do this, you have just bought yourself a wife. And I guarantee you it deterred in a way that our society has trouble deterring teenagers from sexual activity. We could learn a few things from this early law. Now, reading on, if dad doesn't want the sleazeball for a son-in-law, there is still restitution. Verse 17, if the father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. And by the way, that was a huge sum of money. Verse 18, you shall not allow a sorceress to live. Hmm. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. So much for bestiality and sorcery. He who sacrifices, verse 22, any God other than the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. Gang, these last three commandments may seem random, like God's just throwing them out there. They're not. Listen to them again. You shall not allow a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. And he who sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. Spirituality and sexuality were intimately connected in paganism. And so God pulls these three together and he caps the serious restrictions against sorcery and bestiality with a reminder against sacrificing anything of themselves to any other God. Sorcery happened in pagan worship. Bestiality happened in pagan worship. Sacrifice to other idols, it all was a part of pagan worship. And so all three together, God picks these three off and says very seriously, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before you, as the first commandment taught us just this past Sunday. Verse 21, You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him. 
for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And I love this one. There are a couple practical applications for us as the church. First one is that we are to welcome strangers in Christ. God says, if someone comes into your land, Israel, you guys were strangers for 400 years. As you come into your new land, you're going to have strangers, foreigners, passing through your land. Welcome them. Take care of them. Extend a hand to them. Don't be like the Egyptians were to you. Well, for us in the church, welcome strangers in Christ. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 1 tells us, Let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without even knowing it. And I love this verse. 3 John verse 5. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they're strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for, for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I think it's a good foundation for mission work right there. We have missionaries that the bridge supports that many of us have never even met. Strangers to us, but they're strangers in Christ. And God says, welcome them, support them, send them out with love. Send them out in a manner worthy of them being brothers and sisters in Christ. We are called to have a care and a concern for strangers in Christ. For those living in other countries. Uh, Barb always mentions when, when we sing the song, He Reigns. And we sing from the uh, echoes from the towers of cathedrals to the faithful gathered underground. Every time that line is sung, she says she gets chills because she thinks about all those believers throughout the world who are faithfully gathering underground. Believers in China who, if their belief is discovered, can be and have been thrown into prison. Believers in Asia, in places where if their Christianity is pronounced, they are often killed for it. They don't have the luxury of a barn like we have. They don't have the luxury of meeting in open places and discussing Jesus. And so we have to, we should, we need to have a care, a concern for them. A focus on the fact that there are believers in the world outside of our little enclave here on Whidbey Island. So whether you know anyone personally or not, anyone who shares Christ with you is worthy of your support and not your suspicion. And by the way, I'll attach that also to other believers throughout this region. Now, you may not deal with this very much. As a pastor, I do. I, from time to time, run into other pastors from other churches. And it stuns me, unless you know this, it stuns me how often I am given the eye of suspicion instead of support. Especially as you come in, and as we did with the bridge, we planted a new church, we've been here a year, here we are in North Whidbey, and I've met some pastors in, in Oak Harbor, and, and it's always kind of the... So, what are you guys doing up there on the north end of the island? What's going on? You know, some of your people used to come here. I'm like, I didn't invite them. It's not my fault. <laughs> Why do we have to be that way? The Bible is clear. If we share Christ, let's share the kingdom. And let us never be a church that eyeballs other churches and says, oh, they're a threat. No. Other churches are never a threat. Other churches, if they're preaching Christ, are part of the kingdom. Praise God. Amen. Let's be supportive of them. So welcome strangers in Christ. But also, secondly on this verse, we are strangers in Christ. We are strangers in Christ. Some of you are stranger than others. But 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you, as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Remember again, 3,500 years ago, God laid out these laws to draw his people away from the flesh. And that's as relevant for strangers in the world today as it was for them when they were strangers in Egypt. As Israel were strangers in Egypt, so Christians are strangers in the world. And God wants to draw us out of the world, wants to draw us away, wants to remind us that we are strangers in Christ, sojourners, so let's live that way. Well, moving on, verse 22. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does not, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. Here's the heart of the Lord again. My anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wife shall become widows and your children fatherless. God is serious about widows and orphans. Very serious about them. He has a soft spot in his heart. In fact, we see this interestingly in Jesus. Even as he hangs on the cross. 
in an absolutely amazing and tender moment. In a, in a place where if I were on the cross, if I was hung up there, if I was nailed there, the last thing I would be thinking about, honestly, in that moment, would be my mother. I would not be concerned for her. I would be concerned for me. Because it's me up on that cross, not mom. She's doing fine. She's weeping, sure, but I'm the one in pain. Jesus in this same experience, Jesus on the cross, looks down at his mother, John 19.26. And he looks at the disciple whom he loved, John, standing nearby. And the Bible tells us that he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. God has a concern for widows and orphans. For people who have lost. God cares so much. Jesus, even in his death, was thinking about Mary. He was thinking about his beloved John. He was thinking, I need to get these two together to take care of each other after I'm gone from this earth. This is God's heart for widows and orphans. Verse 25, If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, verse 26, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him for three words. I am gracious. I am gracious. God right here is talking about the deal on debt. And here it is. As God looks at mankind, he sees something very clearly. We are all in debt. Every one of us. And so he says, since you all are so much in debt, don't cause your friends and neighbors and family to be more indebted to you. You're so indebted to me. What right have you to cause other people to be in debt? Matthew 6.12, Jesus said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I love the fact that he says at the end of this, I am gracious. The end of verse 27, I am gracious. Let me just remind you of something here. That God is not just gracious toward you. Oh, He is. Gracious and loving and concerned. But He's also gracious toward other people. People that I might have trouble being gracious toward. And you all can call them up in your minds. I'm sure there's somebody in your life that if you think of them, if their face comes to your mind, if you see their name, graciousness is the last thing on your mind. However, God is gracious toward that person. As much as He is toward you. And we are called to that same grace. Take care that we don't become callous toward the world or even toward other Christians who we think are not pursuing righteousness. We need to watch our own attitudes because God is gracious, so we should be. Verse 28. A couple more verses and we're done. You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people, whether their last name is Bush or Clinton. You might say, well, Clinton was past tense. Well, I don't know, maybe not. There's 2008 coming, isn't there? Sorry, reading on verse 29. You shall not delay the offering from your harvest and your vintage. The firstborn of your sons shall be given to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. And it shall be even with its mother seven days. And on the eighth day, you shall give it to me. The eighth day, you shall give it to me. Something interesting here, again, in verse 29, the first four words, first six words, you shall not delay the offering. You shall not delay the offering. He talks about the tithe here, the 10% of Israel's harvest, of their vintage, even of their sons. Remember, the firstborn of Israel was to be given to the Lord. Why? Because the firstborn of Israel were the priests originally before the fallout with the golden calf that we'll get to in a few weeks. Originally, God's plan for Israel was that they would be a nation of priests and every firstborn from every single family of every tribe would be assigned to God and would become the priesthood of Israel. But Levi was the only tribe that stood with Moses. So Levi ultimately is handed the priesthood later on. But it wasn't that way in the beginning. It was a priesthood of all Israel. That's what God was setting up. But he says something here. He says, do not delay your giving, whether it be the fruit of your harvest, your grapes, your firstborn sons, your oxen, your sheep. And they all were given on the eighth day. Now the eighth day, there's an interesting parallel here to me. A parallel to a great reason for our giving on Sundays. 
because Sunday is the eighth day. Seventh day was the Sabbath day for Israel, which was akin to our Saturday, which means the seventh day being the Sabbath day, the eighth day would be Sunday. So don't delay your giving on the eighth day. Now, I've got to make a quick comment on giving. (laughs) I've had some interesting comments just this week, a conversation about giving. A conversation about the whole idea of tithing with a person who was saying, I can't do it. I don't believe God is going to open the storehouses and take care of, I, I just, it's too tight right now. And I said, I understand that, but you need to understand something. And I've said this before. Your giving is between you and the Lord, not between you and me. Now, I've said that many times here at the bridge, but I want to be really clear about what that means. Because I knew a man at a previous church who was dissatisfied with his church and told me, told me personally, said, I'm withholding my tithe. I actually have it in the bank. I'm going to give it when things get right with the church. And my reaction is, who are you withholding the tithe from, the church or from God? Because the tithe is not the church issue. It's a you and the Father issue. Your giving is not between you and the pastor. It's not between you and the bridge. It's not between you and your church. Our giving is between you and the Lord. You and God. Now I say that sometimes and I think people might think, Oh, that's cool. The pastor and the elders, they have no idea what I give. Well, good. That's a load off. Guess what? God does know what you give. And I'm not worried about it. In fact, it's really nice to be in a place where I don't even know. I have no clue. But God does know. And I tell you that just to say, if there's an issue for you personally in in giving, whatever you determine to give, and the Bible's clear on that. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance. Abundance for every good deed. In other words, God wants to give you more as you give. He wants to give you more so that you can give more. That's how it works with the Father. But the point is this, gang. If you have a personal issue with giving and with finances, you've got to deal with that with the Lord. Because that's where the issue lies. And it doesn't, it's no sweat off my, my nose. Is that the phrase, no sweat off my back? I, I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't bother me. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with the church or some kind of an organization, a religious organization. We really have this messed up in our heads. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here. Well, I assume I'm preaching to the choir here. I don't know what any of you give. But just understand that, that in what you purpose to give to the Lord, that it's between you and the Lord. Deal with Him. Because he knows exactly what's going on, whether your giving is, is gracious and generous or not. He knows. We all are real good with playing little games in church situations. Forgetting that the Lord knows exactly what's in our heart and what's going on. That's, by the way, the, the big idea behind this. This God is saying, he's setting up this whole giving. Do not delay in your giving. Why? Because it's a faith issue. God is not concerned with their 10%. God does not need their 10%. He owns everything. He is the God who has everything. What do you buy the God who has everything? What do you give the God who has everything? You give Him your faith. And that's what He's looking for. That's what He desires. That's why the whole giving thing is here because it increases our faith. This friend that I was talking to this week who was saying, I don't believe that God is going to make up the difference of what I give. And I said, that's the point. That's the point. You don't believe it. But God wants you to believe it. He wants you to believe it. No. He wants you to believe Him. He wants to increase your faith. He wants us to grow in righteousness. Little doses. Remember as we started. Doable doses of righteousness. That's what God's doing here. It's what He does in our lives. Doable doses. And finally He says in verse 31, And this is the whole reason why you shall be holy men to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field, and you shall not, and you shall throw it to the dogs. Gain, you shall be holy to me. Or as he says more emphatically in Leviticus 11.45, I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. And by the way, the Holy Spirit passes that call that God gave to Israel. The Holy Spirit passes that on to us as believers. 1 Peter 1.15 Like the Holy One who called you, 
Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, You shall be holy for I am holy. And that's the real deal. Holiness, faithfulness, growing up in our salvation, drawing near to the Lord our God. Well, you guys have been very patient. It's a long chapter to get through. But some interesting things, and again, I would encourage you to apply these. Look at them in terms of grace. Think about God's call to righteousness for each of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. For these ancient words, this ancient law that was handed down to Israel to give them parameters and boundaries. But Father, it does something even for us today. It gives us a sense of responsibility, a sense of of restitution. A sense of, of even progressing in our responsibility with more we know, more is expected. Father, may we, because of grace, be driven to righteousness. May we, because of the grace of Jesus, desire to keep even more fully the things that you lay down in Scripture, your commands. Not because they save us, not because they make us holy, but because you have already done so. Father, set us apart for your work in this world. And I pray that you will continue to bless the work of your church. In Jesus' name. Amen.